It is that time now once again For getting lumped up with my friends It's rock a mic And Rob that you should know And you'll find them here on the rock show Okay, everybody, hey, welcome to uh, another Rocker Mike and Rob show, the Rock Show yes, episode. Sir. Which one? 142? This is, this is 142, and we're talking about who the hell do could. You, you said it. Who's could do? Who's could do? Who's could do? Uh, you know, they were they were a, a punk band out of uh, St. Paul, Minneapolis area in Minnesota. Um, very Can popular. Quick question: What what was the what does the name mean? Remember, there used to be a game called Who's Could Do. It means do I, it means do you remember? Do you do you know what I didn't remember? That. That, <laughs> yeah, it, when we were when we were kids, when we were kids, there was a game called Who's Could Do. Oh God, I, I I wish I can remember what it what the theme of it was. It, it it meant it was like a memory game. You had to remember where stuff was and stuff. And uh, I get into how they got the name, but they took that name and then they added the, the dots above the U's to make it look a little you know different. So that that's how they did that. But uh, you know, Who's Could Do was very influential to what came later. Um, stuff that would be considered the alternative music scene in the early 90s. Uh, I don't think would have been too possible without Who's Could Do. They were kind of like on that line of mainstream and, and underground. They skirted that for a long time. Never quite broke. Um, probably about 10 years ahead of their time, they would have been uh, able to break probably in the 90s. But uh, they did, you know, they just were a little bit ahead of themselves. Um, I, I think, like, there used to be an expression called college rock. And college rock was, to me, was bands like R.E.M. and stuff like that in the 80s. But Who's Could Do were kind of like in that mold as well. Uh, very popular on college radio stations. That was a thing in the 80s, college radio stations. Um, playing different kinds of music, deeper cuts and, and stuff that you wouldn't hear on the radio. You know, when, when alternative music became a thing in the 90s, we all started to get all different kinds of music on the radio. Uh, stuff that would never been played 10 years earlier was getting on the radio, was popular. And uh, Who's Could Do kind of was gone already by that point. But they, yeah, so they did they ever make it to 120 minutes? Do they have like videos and stuff like that? Yeah, 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 yeah. They had videos. Um, they had videos, a few that were, were popular. Um, they made it onto the 120 minutes or regular MTV rotation. Okay. Um, but they, they weren't, uh, you know, they weren't huge. They weren't huge. But as far as underground bands go, they were, they were pretty like the meat puppets and stuff like that, you know. They were probably adults. Yeah, they were as big as big as that, if not bigger. I mean, I think that th their popularity most likely existed more in the Midwest and the West Coast than it did in the East Coast. 
But I was a fan. I, I knew I knew a lot of people that liked Husker Du in New York. Um, you know, it just was, and and I did get to see them one time, and they oh, were pretty yeah? good. Yeah, I, yeah. I gotta tell you, I had no idea who the fuck these guys are. I haven't heard it, so I had <laughs> no clue who they were until you told me. Like, until I saw on their list that they was doing, I heard one or two songs, and I I don't remember. But it's interesting how they had that uh, big love for the Ramones. That's what they united. Oh, yeah. right? That's were, yeah. I mean, that's fans. how they that's how they got started. Um, and you can hear the Ramones in their music. Oh yeah. Um, Especially when they got a little more melodic after the first album, second album, um, yeah. you could hear it. Uh, but they were doing something totally original, even even with that influence. Uh, so let's get into it because uh, it's 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 cool. And one thing I want to point out is, unlike so many bands we we cover, this band stayed the same the whole time. Yeah, and they had no lineup changes at all. Only in the very beginning. Uh, but before they had anything out, but as far as you know, it was a, it was they were a power trio the whole time. Hold on, let's let's see. Can you hear this? No. Makes no sense at all. Yeah, great song. You know, but and Bob Mould's voice was was very recognizable. Um, Which was the other song? I got Don't Want to Know If You Are Lonely. Right. Yeah. And and they made they made an album um, called Zen Arcade, which we'll talk about. Yeah, that's like a big, that was like a breakthrough album, right? It was a breakthrough album. It was a it was a um, a bit of a concept album. Uh, it was a double album. It was something that. Punk bands, you know, in the in the hardcore theme, were not were not doing. You know, no. they weren't getting that deep into stuff. And Husker Du would would lose fans over that, but they didn't care. They didn't care. They did what they wanted to do, and and I think that that's great. You know, when they they had complete creativity, pretty much for their whole career, which is is a hard thing to have. And oh, they definitely. Was, uh, they so many different record labels could stand for a 10-year yeah. run. There were so many record labels. And I do love the story that they were rehearsing um, Psycho Killer. They, they just do whatever because they could. Well, that's how they, yeah, I'll get, I'll get into that in a minute. That's how they got the name. Now, they basically, <laughs> yeah, it, it is funny. I mean, they just were throwing, throwing words out there and somebody said, who's could do? <laughs> <laughs> so, they were an American punk band, and they were formed in St. Paul, Minnesota in 1979. Now, the band's three members were Bob Mould on guitar and vocals. Uh, they had bassist and vocalist Greg Norton and drummer-vocalist Grant Hart. Um, originally... Power trio almost, right? Exactly. Three guys. Power trio. Originally, the band was called Buddy and the Returnables, and they had a keyboardist with them named Charlie Pine. Um, at that time, Mould was a freshman at uh, McAllister College and frequented a St. Paul Records store named Cheapo Records. Grant Hart was already a worker at the store, and uh, Greg Norton would also work there eventually. Um, Hart and Mould would bond in their friendship over their love for the Ramones, and... Uh, when they wanted to put a band together, they asked Hart 
uh, Hart and Pine to join. Um, they played mostly cover songs. Some were classic rock songs. Uh, they would do a lot of Ramon songs, things like that. Um, now, unbeknownst to Charlie Pine, the keyboard player, the rest of the band kind of started to not like the keyboard sound in the music. They wanted to get rid of that. And uh, it took them a little time. They kind of were a little, you know, it looked like they did a little bit behind his back. Whatever there reason was, that was, I'm not sure. There were hits to Tim to kick him out of the band. I, I have a feel that's what it was. They were, they were hesitant to do it. They were probably all friends, you yeah. know, but, but they started practicing without Charlie Pine and just as a, as a, as a trio. And uh, began to write originals as well. Now, one thing that would change immediately would be the band's name, okay? Um, it kind of all fell into place. When they were doing one of these practice sessions, uh, they, were, they were trying to do a version of the Talking Heads Psycho Killer. And there's that part where David Byrne sings in French. He says, qu'est-ce que c'est, qu'est-ce que c'est. And, and uh, they couldn't, they, they forgot how that went. And they just started throwing... <laughs> words out there of, of anything they could think of that was like foreign sounding. So somebody, I don't even think they know who it was, yelled out, who's could do? And, you know, it was like, who's could do? Okay. You know, it sounds good. So they ended up using that as the name. Now, um, it, you know, who's could do was a game that kids played. It was like a memory game. So everybody kind of knew, who it was. I'm surprised they, they never got in trouble for using the name, but it's a good thing yeah, they didn't. That, you know? That's pretty amazing. Yeah, they, they're saying it was, a, it was a popular 1970 ball game. Yeah. The phrase without yeah. meaning do you remember in Dutch I, and Norwegian. Right. Now, I might have, I'll be honest with you, I might have played that game once or twice in my life. It wasn't anything I, that I played, but I, no I remember being around. I remember it being around, but I would never. It was probably, probably too hard. I think it was kind of more of a, hard, a adult game in a way. Maybe I'm not sure. But now they like the name, so what they did is they they took the title "Who's Good Do," two words, and they put the dots that are called uh, oh, what are they call? They call umlauts. Umlauts. They're very common in the German language. Uh, like Motorhead had the the dots above, above the O. Hey, see that? There you go. That's it's still it's still around today, right? Who's could do? I, I don't know, but it's um it looks pretty funky. It's like I don't know, it's I guess it's like a bunch of little pieces. So you gotta remember where you put them or something. Remember where you put them, yeah. I, I look, man, I haven't seen that in forty five years. I don't, crazy. I, don't <laughs> I don't remember. But um now they wanted to make themselves look different, so they put those dots, the the umlauts among them on top of the U's in Who's Could Do. Um, and right away, they were kind of lumped in um, with the punk scene. Now, they did one gig with Charlie Pine on keyboards, and that was on March 30th, 1979. Uh, immediately after that gig, he would be he would be fired. And they would go on as a three-piece, as Who's Could Do. Um, many, many people, including Bob Mould, considers May 17th, 1980, um, at the uh, the punk club in Minneapolis called Jay's Longhorn Bar. 
That would be May 17th, 1980. They would consider that to be their very first gig. Now, by 1980, the band was performing regularly in Minneapolis in different punk clubs, especially that Jay's Longhorn bar. Um, yeah. And, uh, you know, the, you could tell they had a very ferocious sound, okay, which which definitely, you know, the, the, the hardcore punk fans enjoyed. Okay, but they never really considered themselves that. They they weren't part of the the hardcore scene per se. They they played in the clubs. They played with the other bands, but they didn't really consider themselves hardcore, whatever that meant. Okay, yeah, well, definitely more like a little bit between alternative and like rock and roll. That's what pretty much they would have fit in. Yeah, but alternative that that didn't even exist yet. You know, that wasn't even a blip on anybody's radar. They they didn't have that term yet. It it just that's what it would have been like post punk alternative. It was very post post punk is is not a bad thing. To, uh, not a bad uh term for them. Um but you could hear hardcore in their music too and they yeah. did enjoy the hardcore bands that were out there. They just didn't want to pigeonhole themselves in a certain category um i can see really, like the, i can see like nirvana getting influenced by them definitely oh absolutely no that they admitted that they you know, nirvana admitted that uh sound garden even bands like metallica yeah okay we're listening to who's could do a little bit yeah kirk yeah. Hammett was a fan kirk yeah. Hammett. now um they really earned their bones by touring very heavily all over the Midwest, okay? Uh, eventually, they caught the interest of um, LA, uh, California bands Black Flag and the Dead Kennedys, and uh, they would be on. They would do shows with them, and it opened up the whole West Coast hardcore scene to who's could do, and uh, got them a lot of fans in that in that direction. Uh, yeah. Greg Greg Ginn from from Black Flag, who ran SST records would eventually sign them not not quite yet but very soon um and they would kind of have a tumultuous relationship with sst um their first single was called statues had a song called amusement as the b-side uh it was released on the band's own label which was called reflex records in 1981 what was happening was they were trying to shop this this single around and they they, so they, they couldn't just get their own label they did their own that's they so started that's yeah they started their own small indie label called reflex records it uh they got in partnership with uh, a guy named terry katzman who okay. was a well-known producer record store owner promoter in the in the minneapolis area um and basically they, they called it reflex records because it was in response to the fact that they couldn't sell that, they couldn't shop their record to anybody. Nobody wanted it. Okay. Uh, SST hadn't made that offer yet to them. Um, so they were kind of like still looking at that point. Um, you know, the label worked also with some other local bands. So it wasn't just going to be uh, who's could do, though mostly just them. Okay. Now, they would that would come out on that label. Uh, they would work on a live recording, which is actually their first full length album. It's called Land Speed Record. Yeah. Uh, so you know they kind of fall in that very unique category of your first record being a live record. 
the MC5 is another band that comes to mind that that had that category too. Uh, it's not common. Um, even bands like Kiss, when Kiss Alive broke them, that was still like their fourth or fifth album. So it was, you know, it's rare that you have your first full record be a live album. And it was a recording that they made on August 15th, 1981 at the club called 7th Street Entry in Minneapolis. Uh, it came out in 1982, actually. Um, the band recorded the live show on a four-track soundboard in that club uh, for basically $300. Wow. Okay, very inexpensive. <laughs> but when they, <laughs> well, you know, the one thing they did is they work cheap and they work fast. They're very much like the Ramones in that way, in yeah. all their all their recordings. Um, the only thing that happened was when they had the recording completed and on tape, they realized they didn't have a way to distribute it. Okay. So, I mean, they had a, a label they could put it out on, but somebody had to distribute it. So yeah. um, the Minutemen were a band that were from the area played around with them. Uh, Mike Watt, who was in that band, he offered to put the album out on his label, New Alliance. Okay. So he had the distribution. Um, he had an agreement also with Jello Biafra from Dead Kennedys, his label called Alternative Tentacles. So yeah. what, that, what would happen here is uh, New Alliance, Mike Watt's label would put it out. And when it came to European distribution alternative tentacles picked it up okay in the in the uk mostly so they they had an album now a live record that was released and distributed in the states by new alliance and then by alternative tentacles overseas mostly in the uk and you know what the um, critic the critics actually liked the album every album they did it's incredible. every album they did it's incredible. Like when I was reading this, I was like, holy, it blew my mind. It's like, you know what? Uh, Mike, speaking, how many bands have come out from Minnesota? There have been a few bands that came out from Minnesota. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the Minutemen are, the Minutemen are one. Who's could do? Yeah. Uh, oh, God. There's a few more I can think of. I just have to think about it. But from Minnesota? What? Was Soundgarden from Minnesota? No, they were Seattle, right? They were Seattle? I think so. But didn't they have that song, I'm Missing Minnesota, or something like that? The replacements were from Minnesota. The replacements, yeah, I know that. Yeah. All right. yeah. Uh, Soundgarden, I'm not sure. Look it up. I, 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 I thought they were strictly Seattle, but I could be wrong. It might have been. Because that, that was all that whole Seattle shit that came out. Yeah, well, I mean, a lot of people were lumped into that, but they weren't from Seattle, too. Like, that sub-pop label had yeah. Nirvana on it, you know, but they also had the Super Suckers. The Super Suckers were from Texas or Arizona. One, yeah, one there of the was, guy that was an American rock band formed in Seattle. Soundgarden. Yeah, they were formed yeah. in Seattle. Yeah. Now, I got to mention the Land Speed record title actually has three different meanings um it's the band's ability to play fast they had 17 songs in 26 minutes on this uh, on this live record very fast um very fast. also had to do with their love for amphetamines <laughs> and the play with words as far as record 
okay meaning you know a record 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 speed or a record meaning an album okay now new alliance also released the band's second single called in a free land um the band's second album which would be called everything falls apart would be recorded at total access recording in redondo beach california between june and july of 1982 uh clocking in at 19 minutes and 22 seconds for 12 songs it was the band's first studio album with some classic two minute or less tracks like from the gut starts off with that song it's a great song blah 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 there's a punk version of donovan's 60s song sunshine superman uh <laughs> the record saw its release on new alliance in january of 83 so they're pumping out already you know two albums yeah. in a year yeah now, in 1983, in October, uh, the band saw the release of a seven-track EP called Metal Circus. Uh, they still had their, their, their trademark hardcore punk roots with this record, this EP, but it was starting to show some signs of other, maybe more melodic influences. Um, they were kind of like evolving and having choruses in their songs and stuff like that. Uh, there was a track called Diane that was written yeah. by Grant Hart, okay, in the band, the drummer. Uh, it was it was picked up by some college radio stations and got airplay. Uh, yeah, so that was kind of like wow. their first, yeah, that was their first uh, experience with having some somewhat of a hit, kind of regional. Um, I hadn't heard in a long time. I was, I was playing it yesterday. It's still a good song. Um, now, Bob Wolf's guitar playing with this album, you can start to see that he's getting very good. Okay. Uh, it definitely showed improvement from the live stuff and a couple of singles that were out already. Now, by 83, Who's Could Do wanted to create music outside of the confines uh, and boundaries of, of hardcore. All right. Now, the next year would see them record the very ambitious double album called Zen Arcade. Yeah. Uh, very, you know, if, if, if you could point to probably their most important record, I would say it's this. Um, I do kind of like the two records that follow Zen Arcade a little bit more, uh, but Zen Arcade's a great record. Uh, you know, it clocks in over an hour. Uh, double album. Everybody should listen to the album once in their life to check it out. Um, they recorded it, check this out, over a 45-hour period. Yeah, that's at, crazy. At the cost of $3,200. Now, you think they were high on speed or what? I don't know, but... Doing you know it what? 45 hours? <laughs> but you know what? That means they also reduced the cost. They did that one-time payment of thirty-two. You know that they'd, they'd probably save money on that. They probably make money off the thirty-two hundred. Well, even the even the first Ramones record, which was recorded at Radio City Music Hall in the studio, there was for like I think sixty-two hundred dollars. And Sire yeah. Records, Sire Records was like in love with them for being so cheap. So for thirty-two hundred, yeah. it was even better. You know. And it sounded good. Zen Arcade is, is yep. top-notch uh, production. Now, like I mentioned earlier, it's a, it's a concept album, kind of loosely 
based about a boy who leaves home and faces like a hard life ahead of him. He gets screwed over by people and there's a girl involved, of course. Yeah. Uh, there's always a girl, right? And, uh, you know, um, it, it, it was very ambitious for a, a punk hardcore band to be doing this. And uh, I think some people, purists, whatever, were a little turned off by it. You know, some of their hardcore fans. But I think the majority of the fans stayed with them. And what Zen Arcade did is it kind of like, it and kind of... Some people what? even compared to Led Zeppelin, the, the uh, Quantum Freezing album. They compared oh, it to no. that. They... No, the Who. The, the Who's Quadrophenia. Yeah, I, mean, I mean, they compared it to the Who. They were trash. Because yeah. Boy, this is a voice that some people were comparing right. it to the album. <laughs> right, right. Now, you know, D David Frick, who wrote for Rolling Stone, I think he yeah. still does in some capacity, uh, one of the best uh, rock critics ever. He called Zen Arcade the closest hardcore we'll ever get to opera. And also, he, he called it like a punk thrash quadrophenia, like you just mentioned. Yeah. He was the one that quoted that. Um, Zen Arcade had a mix of different styles and influences. Uh, the guitars were definitely more melodic than anything they had ever done. Yeah. Uh, it had elements of folk music, acoustic stuff, uh, songs like Never Talking to You Again, or even some psychedelic sounds on the song Hare Krishna. Um, and then there's a song called Tooth Fairy and the Princess. Uh, yeah. there's, there's piano interludes on, on a, a song or two. Uh, One Step at a Time has it. Uh, Monday Will Never Be the Same. Uh, these were concepts that were rarely, if at all, touched upon in the punk genre, okay? Uh, if you think about punk bands, even pre-hardcore, like 77 punk bands, you know, The Clash is really the only one that comes to mind that, that was so ambitious like that. You know, uh, London Calling was a double album, okay? Uh, Sandinista was a triple album. Nobody was really doing that. And it wasn't, that was just all different styles. Okay. Who's could do was a little more consistent with Zen Arcade. Um, but there was a problem with the album, Mike. Yeah. Yeah. Was I was just going to say, they, they, they were very frustrated. Um, SST was, was the label that put it out. Okay. They were, they were signed with SST at that point. And, it turned out that they were very, Greg Ginn and SST were very cautious as to how many records they would print up. Okay, they would get made. They made between 3,500 and 5,000, but it turned out to not be enough. That's and there were shortages right off the bat. They had a hit on their hands and they couldn't do anything with it. That's happened one too many times in music. You know, uh, I know it happened to Johnny Thunders. When his album came out, um, but it, you know it 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 was a mistake, and they they had to pay for it, unfortunately, because people wanted to buy the record and they couldn't find it. And this was before the internet, okay. So now immediately in between an excessive touring schedule, Huskadu started recording a follow up to New Day, which was called New Day Rising. Um, yeah. They recorded in July of 1984, and it got released in January of 85. New Day Rising 
was a continuation away from the hardcore punk sound that they had started with to more melodic music. But Huskadu had wanted to produce it themselves. That was that was the main sticking point with them. Yeah. SST wouldn't let them do it. Uh, and they used their house producer Spot, okay, who did a lot of work for Black Flag and other bands. Um, it created a, a very tense recording session for that month, okay? Uh, but it, 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 it landed a great record. Okay, I think it's one of their I think it's one of their best, uh, New Day Rising. Um it it kind of like guys made records after record, like they were pumping out records. Very prolific. Yeah, very prolific. Uh Bob Mould and Grant Hart were writing the songs. Uh Norton didn't really write too much. He wrote a little bit. Do you think bands like that that they talk on so many records, they only last like 10 years? You think like by 10 years they just burned out because they like being together, touring, that's that's like tough, man. Yeah, you know, when when you look at back in hindsight at certain bands and you go, well, you know, why'd you put out two records a year when you could have put one out a year or one out every two years? But yeah. then you get into those other th then you get into those other things where you're waiting for a band to put something out. That's not good either. So that's I don't know. Either. You know, I, I, I don't know. I think I think you just I kind of lean towards how they did how they did it, where you just keep pumping it out and hope you, get, hope you get right. Hope hope you get that hit. You know, because yeah. they, they were they were they were like right there. You know, they were real close. Yeah. And um now this album again would be would be critically acclaimed. The critics yeah. love love New Day Rising. Uh the yeah. single that was released off it was called Celebrated Summer. And also the title track, New Day Rising, was a single. Um, and again, they would immediately start working on a new album in 1985. And that would be called Flip Your Wig. Okay. Another, another great record. Now, that got yeah. released in September of 85, and it would become their best-selling album to that point. Um, SST, you know, with Who's Could Do on board, that was who's could do was their best-selling band yeah better than better than even black flag okay at that point um and it's finally the first one on uh that cmj right they depended on label c uh cmj that was uh wasn't the cmj like that that uh album that was released in the independent record able to top the cmj album chat so that one yeah one. they used to be cmj festivals i don't know if you yeah. remember this you know in the no i i do very well because they used to play the continental all the time if yeah. you had a, a cmj festival was when all the underground bands were coming into town and if they were part of that festival they would be playing different clubs in the city you know the continental divide on third avenue was a spot that always had cmj festival bands um others would do it okay um it was kind of like a underground music festival remember there was no internet there was no internet there was no way to know about what was going on with some of these bands so they would have these festivals to showcase and if you got into the cmj which who's could do did okay and other bands got into it 
you would get some you would get some recognition. You would get some press. The press would be wow. writing about it. Yeah, you know, and that was if you got on the CMJ tour, that was that was a big thing for your band. You know, it was a way to promote it. Um, when they were doing Flip Your Wig, they were finally allowed to produce themselves entirely. Okay. And they did spend between March and June of 1985, which was a long time for them to be in the studio. Three months, that was the longest they had ever been. Um, they wanted to have a very high-quality production. Um, they, this record's a little more power-pop-oriented in some ways, yeah. though it still has that heavy guitar distortion. Um, but what was starting to happen is uh, Mould was starting to kind of take over a little bit. It, yeah. it would get worse later. I'll get more into it. He was he was writing about half the albums at that point. Grant Hart was was writing the other half, or they would co-write things together. Um, one single they put out on Flip Your Wig, which is one of their most famous songs, is Makes No Sense at All. You played it earlier. And that yeah. had the B-side of um, the Mary Tyler Moore theme song, Love Is All Around. Yeah. Okay. So they did a great <laughs> version of that. Um, they also uh, recorded their first official video for Makes No Sense at All, and that would get played on MTV. Yep. Um, the song also got Makes No Sense at All got some airplay, even on like regular radio stations that would play rock, not cl maybe classic rock or, or play regular rock and roll when you still had that on the radio. Um, by the year's end in 1985, with two groundbreaking albums released in that same year, Buscadu was starting to get noticed. Yeah. Um, both albums were ranked in the top 10 that year by the Village Voice. Okay? So in their top 10, the Village Voice's top 10, two albums in the top 10 were Buscadu. So they were getting recognized. My and Crazy! How crazy is it that these guys would go to promote the albums, and they didn't have albums to sign to give to the public? SST always had a distribution problem with that. That would it, it would start with Zen Arcade and continue with New Day Rising and Flip Your Wig. It it just it was a frustration that the band had, and uh, you know they would they would leave. Okay, uh, they would leave very soon after Flip Your Wig came out. Warner Brothers, when they were recording that record, approached yeah. the band, oh, and they shit. wanted to they, they wanted to put out "Flip Your Wig," but who's going to said, "No, we're going to put it out on SST." And then Warner's said to them, "Listen, come with us on your next record. We'll give you complete creative control." Wow, that's huge. Okay, and you know they had the Warner Brothers distribution; it was huge. You're yeah. not going to have these problems anymore, you know? No. So they would, you know, they would jump ship. All right. And, uh, you know, I think it, I think it, you know, I don't know all the details. I've heard stories. I think, you know, it created a, a rift between SST and Greg Ginn, Black Flag and who's could do, you know, yeah. it was like, I don't know if they ever, I mean, there would be, there would be legal battles later on. 
with the band NSSD over the years to kind of untangle all this shit. You know, yeah. I, I I don't get into it too much in, in this podcast, but the things did happen that had to do with money and, and stuff they felt owed and all that stuff. Okay. But Mike, you got some great albums that came out by these guys, right? Yeah. And they distribute, so they just make 5,000 albums. You got like millions of people that want to hear that you only fucking make 5,000 albums? That's a fucking slap in the face. It, it is. It is. Now, I don't know if that's 5,000 was maybe the max that they could handle uh, <laughs> as, a, as a label. <laughs> Warner, Brothers, Warner Brothers wasn't going to have that problem, so they were, they were gone. You know, there, yeah. there was no, there was no way they were staying with SSD. Let me ask you a question: Was the signed a contract with Warner Brothers? Could they bring their albums over and have them press more, or, or does SSD? Well, that's you know, okay. I that you 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 could if you had the rights. Mm, okay. uh, I don't think I don't think they did at that point. All right. Um, the the entire Who's Could Do catalog's been released and re-released several times over the years. Uh, SST has put stuff out and Warner Brothers too. So there must be some, you know, okay. collaboration now, 30 years later, you know. But their fifth album, um, which will be their first with Warner Brothers, will be called Candy Apple Gray. Now it was recorded between October of 85 and January of 86 and officially came out on March 17th, 1986. Uh, it would kind of be the completion of their transition away from hardcore to a more like well-rounded sonic style with like uh, you know a lot of distorted guitars, but definitely not not really a hardcore punk sound anymore. Very unique what they were sounding like at that point. Um, it's also at this point too that you started hearing the references to uh, calling them alternative rock or college rock. That was like 1986-87 time. Now, the singles off this record were Sorry Somehow and Don't Know, Don't Want to Know If You Are Lonely, which is one of their famous songs. Uh, popular MTV video existed for that song. And uh, at this point, this would be their biggest selling album. Uh, peaking at number 140 in the top 200. That's amazing. Yeah, so they're getting me. You know, they, they're, just, they're just almost breaking. They're play, getting played a little bit on the radio, getting played a little bit on MTV, a little bit. But they just never, they would never kind of get over that hump. You know what yeah. I mean? They kind of, if they had existed 10 years later, they would have been huge, I think. But you I know? also that once they reach that hump, that's when tension starts, stress, and a lot more stuff start happening. Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, they were having problems, okay, um, which I'll get into in a little bit. It, they, they, they were very private guys, but there was stuff that was going on, which I'll talk about shortly. Now, um, actually, I'll, I'll get into it right now. Um, you know, all wasn't well, like we're saying, even though they were at their commercial peak yeah. Uh, Bob Mould and Grant Hart would clash on the direction of the band. Okay, that was a that was a thing that they 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 fought back and forth between Hart and Mould. What direction were we going to go? Um, Mould had made a comment publicly about Grant Hart, saying that 
he would never let him have more than half a Who's Could Do record. Okay, in other words, he would only be allowed to write at the most half a record. Now, other tensions also got involved because they fired their longtime manager, David Savoy. Yeah. And Bob Moule took over all the managerial duties, which kind of gave him full reign in the band. And, I, and that became a problem. And also, Norton was complaining that his songs weren't getting paid attention to. So, Who's Could Do began working again. They were constantly working David on a sick record. You know uh, that David, the manager, committed suicide. Yeah, eventually he did. Yes. Yes. Uh, don't know exactly all the details of that, but I don't know. He did, you know, did you get any details on that or, or not? I did, what they're saying is at the eve of the, 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 um, the band's manager doing following that most began assuming that most of the band's um, management doing the, doing the following the suicide of the manager, Dave, on the eve of the band's 1987 tour to support the double album Warehouse Songs and Stories. Yeah, that would be the one coming up. Okay, but That's they had already, I believe they had already let him go. Okay, okay. and I guess he, I guess he had a lot of problems and he took it hard yeah. and he committed suicide, I guess. Um, yeah, now this would be their sixth and final record, Warehouse Songs and Stories. Another double album like Zen Arcade. Uh, the track Could You Be The One was released as the first single uh, and video. And just to mention, they, they never released a single off of Zen Arcade. Interesting yeah. enough. They, they wanted to keep it as you buy it, listen to it as a whole. They didn't yeah. do that with this. This was a double album, Warehouse Songs and Stories as well, but they didn't do that. They released uh, Could You Be The One as a single. They also released She's a Woman and Now He Is a Man. That's the name <laughs> of that song. And also the, the song Ice Cold Ice. And yep. those three singles helped propel the album to number 117, which was their best-selling record. Okay. They also did an interview and performance on The Late Show with Joan Rivers on April 27th, 1987. The I can still remember. I remember seeing that. I can still remember watching that because they were going to be on. Um and the Today Show also. Right. They also did the Today Show around that time. Now, this album, Warehouse Songs and Stories, would be their you know, best-selling record. But in my opinion, it probably should have been a single record. I think it would have been even better. Okay. Yeah. It's just, as a double album, there's a little too much filler on there. Zen Arcade yeah. was not like that. Zen Arcade no. was solid all the way. But I think they were probably on a downward you know, spiral with their with their with their uh, with their songwriting by this point. Still a good record, not a bad record, but it's just not it's just not their best. Now they would fall apart on the tour of this album. Okay, they went out to support the album on tour, and what was happening was not only did we have these tensions in the band we just talked about uh, with the songwriting, but there was also drug use going on. Grant Hart had developed a, a bad heroin habit that he was trying to kick. Uh, Bob Mould had stopped drinking. He was a lifelong drinker up to that point. 
Uh, Norton was recently married and was getting into the restaurant business and starting to go in different directions. Um, what would happen is they would have a gig lined up in Columbia, Missouri. And Grant Hart was dealing with his heroin withdrawals by taking methadone. Yeah. And right before the gig, he was going to take some and the bottle broke. So we had to do the show like all junk sick. Okay. And they didn't know if he was going to finish the show. Now he did finish the show. Okay. Well, what would happen is, is um, Bob Mould canceled the rest of the tour. Okay. And basically Hart would quit the band four days later. Um, and Bob Mould has often said that it really wasn't so much what you were hearing. It was more about like three guys going separate directions. Okay. Yeah. 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 Now, January 26th of 1988, the band would officially break up. They would announce it at that point. Um, and, you know, over the next few years, there will be, you know, some different situations where Hart and, and Mould would play. Uh, Bob Mould uh, started a band called Sugar. Okay. Now, in, in 1997, six years after the release of, uh, I, mean, I should say, 1997, six years after their breakup, they, well, not nine years, I'm sorry, after their breakup, um, they uh, Warner Brothers came out with a live record, and it's called um, The Living End. And it's an interesting live record because it's all taken from that last tour in 1987, yeah. a couple of different shows. But the the song list is kind of like from their whole career. Yeah. So you're catching, it's almost like a greatest hits done live in that one tour. Okay. You know they, it's bad because they needed one more album. Yeah. <laughs> they just yeah, they had to put it out. Usually an album, usually a deal is three albums. Yeah, so that's why I figured that that's why they did that. The living yeah, they had, to put, they had to put it out. Yeah. Now, the line of notes for this record was written by David Frick, who was still a fan of the band. Uh, he actually talks about the breakup and stuff and what happened with them on these line of notes. Um, Bob Mould is on record saying he's never listened to this record. So. Yeah. I don't, I don't know. I don't know if that's still true or not, but he says he's never listened to it. Um, like I said, he would go on to start a band called Sugar, which were pretty good. Um, he also started a band called The Nova Mob. Um, he had several solo efforts. Greg Norton went into the restaurant business for a while and uh, would get back into music around 2006. Uh, in a band called The Gang Front. Um, Grant Hart had various projects over the years. Um, sometimes that involved Bob Mould in certain benefit events and things like that. But uh, he would pass away, Grant Hart, on September 14th, 2017 of liver cancer at the age of 56. Bob Mould is around today. He did put something out recently uh, in the last year. I did catch a, a song that wasn't bad, uh, but uh, he uh, he's a, a prolific songwriter, great songwriter, transcended the whole punk scene beyond what they were doing. So 
That's your Who's Could Do episode, my man. Wow, man. What a history, man. Like, but damn, they were, they were, for 10 years, they were a busy freaking band, man. Like, oh, yeah. Wow. Yep. They were playing every day. They had albums after album, and they left a legacy that, you know what, they, you know what, how can, how can you follow up that, uh, that legacy? Like, pretty, pretty amazing. Like, such yeah. a band and such a legacy. Yeah. And, and, influential too i think that a lot of bands like i said from the early 90s and and into the late 90s anybody playing what was considered alternative music uh owed something to them you know they really kind of like opened people's eyes to more underground music uh it was always cool when 120 minutes on mtv would play a who's could do song in between some of the other stuff that wasn't that good you know, yeah. it was kind of like, oh, wow, these these guys are still out there, you know. Yeah. So I, I got to see them once. Um, it was on the uh, Candy Apple Grey tour. And they were very good. Yeah. They were very, you know, they're just, just what you – they sounded like the records, which is what you want to hear. Yeah, but you know what's amazing about the Not Every Record was the same because the, the music no. evolved. Like every album, it would evolve, evolve, evolve into – by the end, it, it was what it was, you know. Yeah, well, they were they were they were unique. They were they were you know they were working in the punk genre, but they they did not want to be pigeonholed into that. And you would hear things like you know you'd hear pianos, you'd hear a you know some kind of instrument that you might not hear in punk rock, you know, in, in what they were doing. But very original band, I dig them. Uh, everybody should check them out. Sugar was a good band as well that Bob Mould had. I think they had about maybe, I think about two albums. I could be wrong. I think about two. Uh, and then he's done solo stuff that's decent as well. So sadly, Grant Hart is not around, so we'll we'll never have a Who's Could Do reunion. But yeah, I think had would, he lived, they probably would have. You think, yeah. I was saying if they were alive, they probably would have reunited. Oh, yeah. Because yeah. you know, people would love to hear something like that now. Oh, yeah. I mean, you, you look at what's popular in music now. What's selling is old music. Yeah. You know, and some people have asked me, you know, oh, Mike, why don't you talk about, you know, something more up to date? And, I, I you know, old music is outselling new music. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I figure I figure I'm on I'm on point by talking about this stuff because, all right, maybe you don't know a lot about who's could do. But I could see someone watching this show and getting Zen Arcade and, and that being a mind-blowing moment, yeah. you know, because because it is that kind of record that when you listen to it, you go, oh, this is not just, you know, Ramones-influenced punk hardcore. This no. is this, this, there's something more going on here. Oh, yeah. You know? Yeah, so that's it. And next week, we got the, so the rest of the, for November, what a schedule. We got the replacement. We got the making of the Four Kids solo album. The Beach mm -hmm. Boy and Body and Buddy Holly. Buddy Holly at the end of the month. Yeah. Uh, it's going to be a good month. November is going to be a good month. Hopefully, yeah. we get a guest for that replacement show. Hopefully. Oh, yeah. I'm looking forward for the Four Kids album so we can shit on this. The oh, yeah. Music. We're going we're gonna, to we're gonna, we're gonna shit on some of them. Yeah, because they're not all good. <laughs> In case you don't know. <laughs> All right. How can people reach you? Okay, you can find me on Instagram, Rocker Mike 212, Rocker Mike 212. You can find me on uh, 
Clout Hub and MeWe as Rocker Mike. You can find me on Facebook as Rocko Mike. And, of course, on the, the Rock Show podcast group page on Facebook where we talk about all this good stuff here. How about you, Rob? And you can find me on anything getting lumped up. And um, if you look up getting lumped up on Google, anything, I'm the first thing that popped up. But I also want to um, tell everybody that our program is changing a little bit for the new year. Yeah. Uh, the show will be every other week because we're doing some more um, interesting conspiracies. So one week we're going to have a rock show. The following week can be a conspiracy show. And then another rock show. Because... Yep. Uh, so we just changing the schedule a little bit to keep people off their feet and um and keep the um, you know the whole channel um interesting because you know we got a lot of questions we got a lot of reading a lot of strange books because we're gonna have a hell of a show for you with uh the conspiracy uh 4-2-0. yeah we're gonna we're gonna emphasize the conspiracy four two oh shows a little more starting next year yeah um and uh but don't worry the rock show's still gonna be on uh every other week now instead of every week. Well, yeah. we'll still be talking about new and interesting bands maybe you never heard of. I got a few lined up. Uh, I'm going to make a new list definitely soon. Oh, you uh, can for- stop bringing up concerts date since we have concerts again. You can bring up, stop bringing, doing who's playing soon. Cause concerts- yeah. yeah, you know, I, I mean, there is there is some concerts I've, I've heard about uh, that are scheduled starting you know, in October, November, December, and all that. So yeah, I'll I'll, I'll keep people up to date on that. You know, because they they they're definitely playing like a lot of Forest Hill, Steel, uh, Terminal Five. Every everybody's getting sure they um didn't um um Cheap, Cheap Trick just played not too long ago, and I yeah, think Irving- Cheap, Cheap Trick played Irving Plaza back in September. Yeah. Um, and our buddy Sean Harris, who's doing a couple of shows with us, he, he was there and I got to see some clips from it. Everybody singing Surrender. That was pretty cool. <laughs> you know, that was, uh, they were playing the night that, the night that we did the, uh, the Jack Davidson interview. Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. They were playing that night, you know? And we were yeah. we were we were lumped up in Johnny's. We weren't going nowhere that night. <laughs> oh man, what a night! <laughs> oh yeah, I started at Nassau Bar and ended up in Johnny's. <laughs> All right, Mike. So let's end this fine programming, this excellent program with um, "Don't Get Drunk, Get Lumped Up," people. See you next week. Take care. Podcast you will hear that will be music to your ears. You'll learn about bands you love or may not know, and it's only here on the Rock Show. Let's get lumped up on the rock show.